What? I'm just looking. I'm just looking. Yes. <clears throat> Taking mental attendance. Mark 14. <clears throat> We're back in Mark. Mark 14. That's page 850. In those blue Bibles, looking at the first 11 verses this morning of Mark 14. So I'm titling this message, Reckless Devotion. Reckless Devotion. Let me define those two words for you as we move through the message. It'll become important. Devotion is simply the fact or state of being passionately dedicated and loyal, either to an idea or a person. Passionately dedicated or loyal. Some synonyms, words that are different but imply the same thing, are dedication, would be a synonym for devotion, or commitment, or love or concern for, or faithfulness, or allegiance. These are all good words that help us better understand the nuances of devotion. Now, reckless, you probably know. When we consider it, I'm sure most of you think of it as in a a negative way, right? Reckless. We don't usually speak about someone positively with such terms. To be reckless is typically understood as being irresponsible, out of control, careless, or unconcerned about undesirable consequences of one's actions, right? When we see someone driving ridiculously on the freeway in front of us, and it happens not to be us at this time, we say that they are practicing reckless driving. They're not really concerned about the people around them. So I've titled this message, Reckless Devotion with the question mark. Reckless Devotion. The woman in our text today that we're going to be reading about was in a sense accused of being reckless due to her fervent and passionate devotion shown for Jesus. But what appeared in the text or at the time to be reckless behavior to the disciples of Jesus Christ Jesus actually labeled it as a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. So let's look at it together. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Follow me along as I read from God's Word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said... Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. 
She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So this morning, if you're following along, there's an outline inside of your bulletin. We will learn three challenging lessons about one woman's devotion to Jesus, hoping that we too might become more reckless, in a sense, in our devotion to him. The first of the three challenging lessons will be she was not afraid to show her devotion. We're going to go back over these. Second, she was not concerned with the high cost of her devotion. And third, she did not hold back in displaying her devotion. It's going to be some good stuff. But before we get there, I need to address a few things quickly. From here on out, beginning in chapter 14 in Mark, the story is devoted to the most significant events of Jesus' story. That is his death and his resurrection. That's what this final two chapters covers. And this includes his betrayal, his suffering, his crucifixion, his burial, and his bodily rising from the dead. Mark 14, the first two verses we just read, verses 1 and 2, and the final two verses, verses 10 and 11, actually set the stage now for this grand drama for Jesus' betrayal by Judas and subsequent false arrest and mock trial that ultimately leads to Jesus' unjust execution. Mark 14.1 informs us, as we just read, if you look back at the text, that it was now only a few days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Maybe that's the first time you've heard those terms. Maybe not. Maybe you're familiar with them. These celebrations took place once a year in the city of Jerusalem, as God had commanded his people to do. And they lasted over a period of eight days. This was a a feast, a celebration, a big extended party. The Jews that were living outside of Jerusalem when this event took place would travel from afar to be there for the special occasion. So, as a result, the city of Jerusalem was incredibly crowded during this time. Kind of like when Fontana, the races come to Fontana, right? And then you can't get on the freeway and it's just crazy. But even more so, even more so, the population may have doubled, tripled, quadrupled, where there's different estimates about how many people were there, but a lot of people flooded into the city. These Jewish festivals were held primarily to remember and honor what God did when he rescued the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, from their slavery in the land of Egypt. He brought them out of that land in a mighty way, and he was going to bring them into the land, the promised land, that he made a promise to about, or about this land, to the people's forefathers. That is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if you want to read that whole account, it's simple. You can read Exodus 12, beginning in verse 1, through chapter 13, verse 16. And in that account, you'll see not only God saving the people out of Egypt, 
but his instructions about them memorializing this event with this Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We'll talk more about those celebrations in weeks to come, so I don't want to get into a lot of detail now. They'll become more important to us as we move through Mark at the end here. What I really want you to see today, though, is that Mark 14, 1 and 2, that first part of this section, and verses 10 and 11 is really a severe contrast to the story of the woman's devotion to Jesus found in between, basically, these tragic verses. Her devotion is, in a sense, framed or sandwiched, if you can think of it that way, like a sandwich. We have the bread on both sides. One of it is the religious leader seeking to kill the one they should be bowing to. And on the other side, we have Judas, one of the twelve, one of his inner circle, one of his followers, who betrays him. In the middle of this sandwich, we have something just glaringly contrasting these evils. And that is the devotion of this woman to Christ. Due to the large crowds, by the way, that were present for the festivals, as I've explained, because of all the travelers coming in to celebrate these great feasts, there were a lot of people there at the time. And there would have been a lot of Galileans there, which is where Jesus grew up, where he did a lot of his ministry. And so there were a lot of people there that were actually favorable towards Jesus. Although they may not have recognized him as Messiah yet or embraced him fully, they still favored the guy. I mean, he healed people. He fed people. I mean, he did some really nice things. So there was a general fondness for him. And so the religious leaders knew that if they just reached out and grabbed him in the midst of this huge celebration with all these people present, they risked serious riots. And that was dangerous because they were under the occupation of Rome. And Rome had one thing that they did very well, keep the peace at all costs. And so they would bring in their military if necessary and they would crush any type of rebellion or out-of-control riots because to them, the empire could not remain if peace did not exist. So... For that reason alone, they were fearful. How are we going to get this guy? We want to kill him, but we don't want to stir up a big commotion and then cause the Roman soldiers to come in and maybe blame us for what has happened. But guess what? Lo and behold, according to this story, along comes Judas. A man in Jesus' inner circle, as I've said. One of the twelve disciples. A person, like I said, who should have been loyal and devoted to Jesus. But he turns on him and he provides a way for the religious leaders to accomplish their evil plan without causing an uproar among the people. And we'll get to that in weeks to come. Most of you know, or many of you maybe know, that's why they took him at night. was when the people were asleep. So, some commentaries say this about What's going on here? I just want to read that to you. It says, Mark's placing of this story here, that is, the story of the woman and her pouring out of this perfume on Jesus, it contrasts the hatred of the religious leaders and the betrayal of Judas with the love and devotion of Mary 
demonstrated by her anointing of Jesus with expensive perfume. That's basically what I've just said. Another adds this. This woman's act of extraordinary adoration is sandwiched between extraordinary malice and betrayal. Malice, by the way, just means with intent to cause harm, referring to the religious leaders. They wanted to see Jesus arrested, and not just arrested, beloved, but murdered. Now, I mentioned that the woman in this story is named Mary, didn't I, just now? But Mark doesn't record her name. Do you remember hearing Mary when we read Mark 14, 1 through 11? No, you didn't. We just read about a woman. Well, we know that this is Mary because of John's gospel. John chapter 12, you don't have to turn there. But John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, also record, you can drop that slide. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, also record this story. And specifically, verse 3 identifies this woman who does this act to Jesus as Mary. This is Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, whom John 12, 1 reminds us that Jesus raised from the dead. Okay? So this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and Martha, the one whom Jesus raised from the dead, the one whom Jesus brought back to life. You can read about that in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. I also mentioned that Mark placed this story here. He placed it here. Why did I say that? And what does that mean? Well, John's gospel, and this is just stuff that I think might be helpful. It might come up someday, and I want you to know it. John's gospel makes it pretty clear that this event with Mary and Jesus actually occurred six days, six days prior to the Passover. In fact, that's what John 12, 1 through 3 says. But in Mark's gospel, in beginning chapter 14, verse 1, it starts with this reference, time reference specifically, to two days before the Passover. So what gives? And this is one of those occasions where people who want to try to discredit the Bible or prove that it's not God's word will scream and shout and say, Look, there's a contradiction! John says six days. Mark says two. One of them's wrong. And this is where scholars who accept that God's Word is God-breathed and is inerrant and perfect and does not err in all that it reports try their best to harmonize the different stories in the Gospels with all the details to figure out how we can make sense of what might appear to be two different accounts of the same story. Okay, so this is how most scholars would address this. They would see John's gospel and his chronology of this event happening six days prior to the Passover being accurate, being the correct one. But Mark is taking that story and placing it into these events of the religious leaders seeking to have Christ arrested and killed, and then the story of Judas helping them and betraying the Lord. He places this story that happened not too many days before, four days prior to that, into this account for thematic reasons or theological reasons. In other words, 
He's not trying to tell you this is the chronological event exactly. He's simply saying, I want you to see the contrast. How awful this really is and how glorious this is, this woman's devotion is, in light of the darkness in which it exists. It's kind of like the stars in the midst of the black sky. They, the blacker the sky, the more brighter the stars shine. In the same way, this woman's story really stands out in contrast to what's going on at that time period. So, the reference in 14.1 of being two days prior to the Passover does not relate then to this particular story of Mary and the perfume and Jesus, but it relates specifically to when the religious leaders decided, hey, it's time to see Jesus arrested and killed, and then following those events, Judas helps them in that process. So that's how we do deal with that, and that's how we harmonize those Gospels. So that's all introduction. Let's jump into the first point and see if I can... Uh, Help you guys with this a little bit. She was not afraid to show her devotion. She was not afraid to show her devotion. Look at Mark 14. Look back at the text. And that's what we're going to be focusing on are these verses 3 through 9. 3 through 9. It says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask. Don't freak out about that. That's just the material that's used, and it's a bottle. So just... For our, for our mind, it's a perfume bottle, a fancy perfume bottle made of a particular type of marble or stone that they used. So she has a, a perfume bottle of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she breaks it in order to open it, and she pours it over Jesus' head. Now, in John chapter 12, 1 through 3, where this same story is recorded, you can turn there if you'd like. It'll pop up on the screen in a second. I'll just read you this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound, which is actually 12 ounces in their measurements, Roman measurement. She took a 12 ounces of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. So a couple of things are going on. Mark, we know, she takes the bottle, she's anointing his head. Also we see she's anointing his feet, even using her hair to wipe his feet with the ointment. And then it says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. How many of you think that's a strange practice? Oh, no? Well, I'm going to come over to your house and see what happens. <laughs> Not that I'm Jesus or anything, but um, this might seem like a strange customer practice, right? Pouring or smearing perfumed oil on someone's head or body, but in their culture, it was traditionally done as an act of kindness towards their guest. It provided, beloved, practical things. It provided refreshment for their dry and parched skin in that climate. And it also perfumed them. It left them smelling good. Just remember, they didn't have deodorant back then. So this was a way of helping with that. And I don't know about you, but when I put on a good cologne or even when I smell my good-smelling wife, I just feel better. 
I don't know what it is. It just makes me happy when I smell good things. So it did a couple of things. It probably made everyone happy, the guests, the household, and it's kind of refreshing and it helped dry up that parched skin. One writer adds this, pouring some oil on the head was a common treatment of a, of a festive guest, but anointing the feet was unusual. It was an act of special esteem. Special esteem. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Now I want you to picture the scene, though, as it's going on. We have Jesus there. He's there with his 12 disciples in Simon's home. It's six days before the Passover, six days before Jesus will be crucified. They're preparing to eat a meal, we learned from John, that Martha is serving. Okay. Now, they did not sit down, just so you know, they did not sit down on chairs at tables like we're familiar with, but they would actually lay down on their left elbow like this, and they would recline away from the table. So if this was the table, this is what they would do, and they would eat with their hands like this, and the guy behind them would be there, and the guy next to him would be there, or gal, and you could talk to each other. So they're, they're just like this. This is how they did it. I know it's weird, but it's just weird to us because it's different. But this is how they did it. And they would maybe lay on cushions, and the table would be low to the ground. And the only reason I tell you that is, is because you might be thinking, how did, how did she get to his feet? Did she get down underneath the table? That would be weird. No, his feet were exposed. They were away from the table, his head. Everything would have been available and there was spacing in between them when they ate. So here's the picture. Mary, Martha, her sister, serving. They're at the house. There's a lot of people there. Mary decides, I'm going to go get the bottle of incredibly expensive perfume. And we'll get to that in a moment. And I'm going to pour it on Jesus' head and feet. And I'm going to use my hair to wipe it in. Because that wouldn't make you wouldn't use your hair to wipe it into his hair. You understand what I'm saying? So she would use her hands, and then it's kind of probably just running all over his feet. So she just she probably just takes her hair, and, and I'm not sure why, but that's what she did. That's what the text tells us. One one writer says wiping his feet with her hair was a was a gesture of utmost devotion and reverence. Okay, to me I would just be weirded out, but for them it was a sign of devotion and reverence towards her towards the Lord. Now get this, guys. Nothing is recorded about anyone being upset about her getting the perfume and anointing Jesus. There's, there's nothing about that, about her actually the, the act of anointing Jesus, nor is there any reaction, negative reaction to her using her hair. So that's obviously not strange or weird. Right? I'm just trying to find out where I am. Yeah, I am in Mark. Thank you. (laughs) That actually helped. It gave me a break. But there is outrage among those present, specifically the disciples. And also we know from John that Judas actually started this outrage for a whole other reason. He's just mad because he used to pilfer money out of the bag and he's upset because he'd rather take it, sell it, and keep the money for himself. But the disciples jump in on this too. So he got got the ball rolling. They're upset. They're outraged that she used expensive perfume on Jesus. Why? Because that was not a common practice, that she would just dump this expensive perfume out on him. Anointing, even maybe the hair thing, obviously not a big deal. 
But the fact that it was this very pricely, costly perfume, and she used it on Christ, that got them mad. Now, I don't think for a second that Mary didn't know that what she was about to do and did do was over the top. Outside the bounds of normal and acceptable. I don't believe for a second that she didn't know that. I think she knew it. She knew this was crazy. You know, it wasn't like, oops, wrong bottle. I should have grabbed the cheap stuff. That's not what's going on. She didn't have 20 bottles. She, on purpose, went and grabbed the super-duper expensive stuff and didn't dribble it, we'll get to it in a second, but poured it all out on him. She is just asking for people to get upset. And that's what makes this so amazing. She knew exactly what she was doing. But guess what? Her concern was obviously not what others might think of her. That was not her concern. If it was, she wouldn't have done it. She wasn't concerned about how much less they might think of her because of it. I can't believe you did that, Mary. But her concern was showing Jesus her love in the greatest and most significant way that she could. That was her concern. That was her focus. She cared more about what he thought than what anyone else thought. Did you catch that? She cared more about what he thought than what anyone else in that room thought. And as a result, she was not afraid to show her love. Fearless. Now, one writer says this. The world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. It has no problem with too much wealth or power or sex or influence. But it has a problem with too much religion. See, beloved, I don't know, maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't. Hey, don't become too fanatical. Don't get too crazy for the Lord. You don't want to go over the top. Get too radical. Come one of those Jesus freaks. You know what you need to do? Just tone it down. Tone it down. Relax. Isn't that what the world says? Keep it private. Keep it to one day a week for an hour or two. Don't bring it here into the public place. Don't be talking Jesus up. Oh, but if you want to talk about wealth or power or sex or influence, oh yeah, baby, get all you can get. Do it till you can't get no more. Take it to the extreme. And sadly, we fearfully submit to this pressure. Beloved, it's okay to be crazy for the Lord. The world says, hey, it's okay to be crazy, but not for the Lord. No! It's okay to be a little crazy, reckless even, in some sense, devoted over the top 
extravagant in our devotion for the Lord. People do crazy things all the time to show their love for other people, right? Without any care for what others might think of them or less of them. I was at a hockey game last night. In the middle of a hockey game, the sign comes up on the screen and all of a sudden, this guy's bowing down with the ring open like this. I'm like, what? At a hockey game? People are killing each other right there, slamming up. And he's like, will you marry me? Okay, he obviously does not care what people think. Why? Why? Because I'm, maybe that won't, that's, that's what she always wanted. She's like, you know, the best thing in my life would be for you to propose to me while people are knocking each other's teeth out. Oh, woman, I'm going to do that for you because I love you. I love you and I don't care what the world thinks. Maybe that's why I don't know. But listen, if this guy will do this for his woman who he loves, how much greater, beloved, would I not care about what the world thinks when I show my devotion, even if some might go, oh, he's nuts, he's over the top. What do I care? This is the Son of God. Our sinful world certainly approves and encourages excesses or extreme behaviors, beloved, in many areas of our life. But they discourage and they frown upon utter and unreserved devotion to Jesus Christ. But we shouldn't. He alone is absolutely worthy. He is worthy of every ounce, every last ounce, ounce of devotion that we can show Him. And Mary apparently got that, but His disciples had yet to regard Him in that way. Right? Because they're not praising her, beloved. They're criticizing her. They're indignant. They're scolding her. If they understood who it was who was in their midst, if they really got it, They should have been like, oh man, Mary, a great idea. Let me get in on that. Let me, I got some perfect Jesus, I'll be right back. You know? Why didn't I think of that? They should have been like, that's beautiful, Mary. That's a beautiful, that's what the Lord said. That's what the Lord said. They scolded her, beloved. Now you can... You can think through this a little bit, the implications of this for us, even just, but I don't want to go too deep today. I just want you to think about it, like public prayer. You know, these are, these are ways we show our devotion to Jesus Christ. And, but think about how many of us are unwilling to do that, afraid of what people might think. Well, this is a restaurant. Nobody prays in here. Who cares? I don't care. People carrying their Bibles. You know, now we don't have to worry about that. People used to be afraid. I don't want to carry a big Bible because then people will see my Bible and they'll think I'm a Bible thumper or something or a really crazy Christian. Well, now we don't have to do that, right? We have smartphones. Now we can even read our Bible and no one even knows it. What are you doing? I'm playing a game. (laughs) That would be more believable, right? Oh, okay. But even talking about Him, things like that, beloved, just think it through. Think about it in your own life. Are you... Are you fearless in your devotion for Him? Alright, two. She was not concerned with the high cost of her devotion. 
She was not concerned with the high cost of her devotion. Mark 14, it mentions that this ointment is, is pure nard. So all that is is perfumed oil made from rare nard plants that are native to India. It had to be imported. Okay, It was not in their area. So it was very costly to bring it in. How costly, you ask? Thank you for asking. Mark 14, verse 4. Look back at the text. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. 300 denarii was approximately equivalent to a common laborer's wages for one year. This is how we base that. They would be paid a denarii every day. They worked approximately 300 days out of the year. Now, maybe that strikes you as odd that this woman possessed a bottle of perfume that cost so much, and I would estimate that somewhere around fifteen to $20,000 in our uh, common day labor wages. If you take minimum wage and multiply it by 2080, you come around to that number somewhere like that. So, wow. Now, do you understand how costly the bottle is now? 300 denarii? Whole year's worth of wages? But just out of curiosity, I thought I would go online and try to find the most expensive perfume in our day. Anybody know what it is? It's called Clive Christian Perfume. It is a mixture of pure and precious flowers from all around the world in a very fancy bottle. Anybody want to take a a guess? 20... I always wanted to do that. Uh, storage wars. $215,000. Supposedly, supposedly, according to the website, it has such a grandiose fragrance that it can hypnotize anyone around you. Oh, it better. Give me your car. Because that's what I would have to do to get my money back. That's insane to me. Ah, I don't even know how big it is. Does it matter? Does it matter? If they gave me a gallon, you'd be like, oh, a gallon, that makes sense. <laughs> oh, my... Okay, so it is, it is not so shocking that the woman might possess, by the way, such an expensive perfume in her day. You might think it is, but it was not. Spices and ointments were very expensive, as I said, because they had to be imported. And according to one writer, he said this, frequently they were used as an investment because they occupied a small space, were portable, and were easily negotiable in the open market. So people might invest their, their money that they've saved up over time to purchase these things and then use them in the market for trading. Perhaps, and most likely, it represented her life savings. Additionally, according to another writer, he says a great deal of money was spent on funerals. A great deal of money. Not, we spent a lot of money too. But it included the purchase of quality perfumes and spices in order to put on the dead body to counteract the nauseating odors of decom- decomposition when the body begins to rot. 
they didn't embalm their people like the Egyptians did. They would soak them in perfumes and spices so it would help with that process so that there would be some type of honor to their passing away and you wouldn't smell the decomposition. One writer says, Many families would save and buy an expensive flask of really good aromatic oil and perfume and keep it stored for funeral occasions. There was no embalming, as I said. Burial would be within hours after a death, and the body would be washed, perfumed, and laid to rest. So she could have been saving it. Don't, don't think this is what she wore like her night out on the town. You know what I'm saying? That, that's not what's going on here. This was some pretty pricey stuff, and you would not just throw it around lightly. And perhaps it, that was its intended use for her burial or a burial of a loved one or something of that nature. Either way, her possession of it does not shock me. It is her willingness to part with it. All of it, beloved. That's what shocks me. That's what grabs me. That's what shakes me. Not some of it, but all of it in an incredible and extravagant act of kindness poured out on Jesus, literally. And that should cause you to sit back and think a little. It was intense. It was over the top. It was extreme. Indeed, it was reckless, in a sense. One writer says this, The text prompts us to ask, How much is too much devotion to Christ? A little oil? Even expensive perfume is fine. But to break open a whole jar seems too extravagant. Now let me say something here. The disciples, and you can ponder that for a little bit, the disciples only, in their eyes, see money being poured down the drain, so to speak. Money that could be better spent in their estimation on helping the poor. But Jesus rebukes them. He rebukes them for jumping all over Mary and praises her deed. And then he addresses the voice of concern that was made for the poor. Let's look at it together. Mark 14, 6 through 7. says, But Jesus said to her, Leave her alone. I would have loved to hear exactly how he said that. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing this is, this is pretty neat. To me. She didn't just do a beautiful thing. To me. For you always have the poor with you. Catch that. Always. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. You always have the poor. You will not always have Christ with you. Jesus is not saying here, beloved, as... Some might attempt to teach, which would be a travesty, that the poor don't matter or we shouldn't be concerned for them. This is not Jesus versus the poor in this passage. What Jesus is simply saying is that there will be ample and continual opportunities to care for the poor and they should do that. Yeah. But... Jesus' time with them was coming to an end. But you will not always have me. 
So the time to show him love while he was still on the earth in this context was diminishing. And Mary did it in a grand and mighty and incredible and extravagant way before it was too late. Indeed, his death, beloved, was only days away. One writer says, there is no evidence in Jesus' statement of a lack of concern for the poor. On the contrary, there is ample evidence elsewhere that their interest and needs lay close to his heart. I just wanted to take that and point that out. Now, back to the point. Mary did not calculate the immense cost. She did not, but she captured the moment she had to love Jesus in a practical and radical way. Not just in words, beloved but in action. She didn't just say, Lord, I love you. She demonstrated it. She demonstrated it. Many Christian men and women, beloved, have paid a very high price for their devotion to Jesus Christ. A high price. But I would argue that they were never the poor for it. One commentary says this. I like this. Love does not neatly calculate the less or the more. It is not concerned to see how little it can decently give. If it gave all it had, if indeed it gave all the world, the gift would still be too little. There is a certain recklessness in love which refuses to count the cost. You parents know what I mean. You love your child. And if there's anything he needs, keyword, needs, anything at all, you'll make whatever sacrifice is necessary to get it for him. Is that right? Love is not love if it neatly calculates the cost. So I don't know about you. I love my kids. I love them. And if they told me today, you have to give up your life through some medical process in order to save one of your kids' lives, done! Right? Done! But my kids didn't, nor could they, lay down their life on my behalf to save me from hell and the wrath of God that I deserve. Do you hear what I'm saying? My kids couldn't do that. But there is one who could and did do that. Mary didn't even... There's no way she could have fully understood all that was going on and would have happened. Jesus had not yet died, yet He was still with them. And there is no doubt that her gratitude and devotion was driven, at least in part, by the fact that Jesus had raised her very brother from the dead after He had been dead for four days. So certainly that has something to do with it. Do you get that? So she has her brother back. He's there at the dinner. 
I, this guy, I love this guy. He gave me back my brother. We also know that he, she sat at Jesus' feet while Martha was busy serving and cleaning the house. Another story tells us, and she's just listening to the Lord. So she may have known a lot about him and his plan and, and even recognized him as Messiah and understood all those things. But, beloved, you and I live on the other side of the cross. Mary did this on that side of the cross before he actually spread his arms and gave his life for sinners. And this kind of devotion happened. How much more, beloved? He did a lot more than just raising my brother from the dead. He has given me eternal life. He has saved me from a destiny of wrath and hell. Huh? Yeah. Finally, she did not hold back in displaying her devotion. Number three. In Jesus' defense of Mary for what she did, He says this in Mark 14, verse 8, She has done what she could. Now, these points do overlap that I'm talking about, but I, don't, I wanted to just define this separately because I don't want you to miss it. You could also say this passage in this way. She has done what she was able to, or what she had, she did. One writer says this, this is more than Jesus could say of any of the rest of them. His disciples. In other words, she did no less than she could do, but rather gave everything that was in her power to give. She held nothing back. She held nothing back when it came to showing her love and devotion for Jesus. She was unrestrained, that's the word I like, unrestrained in her adoration and devotion. One writer says this, she spent herself to the uttermost. I like that. What she could, Jesus says, and he says, and I confess that I feel a stab at my conscience as I read the little phrase, what she could. How many of us can say that? See, I want the Lord. I am, by His grace, I am hoping that when I see the Lord, He will say to me, you did what you could. You gave everything that was in your power to give. You held nothing back. For my sake, you, Jeremy, spent yourself to the uttermost for me. Jesus went on to say about Mary in Mark 14, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. I need to comment on this, otherwise it will be confusing. Scholars debate whether Mary actually had an awareness of the closeness of Jesus approaching death and, and actually acted with the specific intent of preparing his body for the burial. In other words, when she did that, did she really know that's what she was doing? It was kind of a pre-preparation for the coming death of Christ. Whether she did or didn't, Jesus certainly gave that significant interpretation or meaning to her act of devotion. That's what he's saying. Listen, 
She did this. This was for my burial. One writer says, Was Mary aware of this aspect of what she was doing? Perhaps not. But it is possible that she had a greater sensitivity to what was about to happen to Jesus than the twelve did. As I said before, in Luke's Gospel, she's depicted as a good listener. And perhaps by this means, she wanted to do for Jesus what she knew would ordinarily not be done for one who would die the death of a criminal. Just in case you don't know, criminals were not allowed to be washed and perfumed and properly buried. So maybe this, this was her one shot. Either way, Jesus gave this woman an incredible honor for her devotion to Him. This is, this is pretty amazing. Mark 14, 9. Imagine if this was said about you. And truly I say to you, Jesus, verily, verily, absolutely, you can take it to the bank, wherever the gospel, the good news of me is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Really? This must have been very significant to couple it with the gospel. He did not want this woman to be forgotten. One writer says this, The Lord erected a memorial for all time to her who had done her best to honor Him. Let me wrap this up. I said that this morning we would learn three challenging lessons about one woman's devotion to Jesus so that we might become more reckless in our devotion for Him. And then we looked at these points. She was not afraid to show her devotion. She was not concerned with the high cost of her devotion. And she did not hold back in displaying her devotion. Why? I could go another message just on that question right there, but I'm not. Why? Why? Beloved, she was crazy about the Lord. Crazy about the Lord. And that's the key to this. This is not like a, a to-do list, right? So you walk out here and go, you know what? I need to show more devotion to Jesus Christ, I do. I will be fearless, that's what I'll do. I don't care about the cost. I forget the third one. Oh, I will not hold back, right? So I will not hold back. It wasn't for like drama, dramatic effect or anything, I just forgot. That, okay, Listen, that'll last for a couple of days, right? What this should do is help you analyze where your heart is. I mean, in one sense, I'm telling you, it's okay to be reckless for the Lord. In fact, the Lord loves it. He commends it. That's what I'm telling you, in one sense. In another sense, I'm saying, the only way it's ever going to happen is, you've got to be crazy about the Lord, And there are so many things fighting for our affection. Right? So many things that just detract and take away and steal away. That's what I want to say. They steal away our love for the Lord. We allow these things into our life. They steal away our love for the Lord. That's why we're not crazy about Him. And that's why when it comes to showing devotion for Him... We're fearful. We do calculate the cost. Well, I don't, I don't know. How much is it going to cost me? I don't know if I can give that much time. 
And we do hold back. Beloved, this is why we've got to know the Lord. And we've got to know what He has done for us. And we've got to remind ourselves of it and we've got to explore it more and know it better. This is why on the back of these sheets we have here, preach the gospel to yourself. You know why we tell you to do that? Because it will make you fall in love with the Lord. And then you will be motivated to be crazy for Him. I'm done. Let's pray. Father, uh, Father, I pray that help us. That's what I'm going to ask you, Father. I'm going to ask you just to help us to fall more in love with our Savior. That we would be careful about all the things that we allow into our life and, and steal away our affection for Him. Now, Father, we would ask you to reveal those things to us and, and we would be wise about saying no to things, even things that are not sinful in themselves, but consume our hearts and our minds and our lives so that there's no time left for the Lord. No wonder. No wonder our devotion is pathetic. So, Father, reveal those things to us and help us to know the Lord Jesus in a more deeper and intimate way and to know the sacrifice, the deep, incredible, amazing, mind-boggling sacrifice that He made for us who call upon Him in faith as Lord and Savior. Help us. Because when we start to get a hold of that, then and only then will we be reckless in our devotion for Him. We will stop being fearful. We will stop counting the cost. And we will be unrestrained in giving our lives to Him in every way. Father, we want to do this because we know it is praiseworthy. It is right. It is honorable and it glorifies You. And the truth is, that's where we're actually going to find our satisfaction and our happiness and our joy when we are fully and completely living sold out for our Savior. Father, have your way with us. Have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen.